Hey y'all, thank you for tuning in today. I hope you're having an awesome day. I'm Christy, and I've always had a fascination with some of the darker sides of life. From true crime and conspiracies to cults and everything paranormal. I also believe that knowledge is one of the most powerful gifts we possess. So since I already spend much of my own time consuming information about these topics, I wanna share them and see if together we can learn from them. I haven't released a new episode in a few weeks. This time of year is so hectic for us and I've been working through some stuff, personal and professional. And while I hope this podcast um, will eventually get into a regular routine, it's a work in progress. So I appreciate your understanding and glad you're tuning in. Today's episode is about an old case and I mean old. The story I am going to cover today is about a series of potential murders that took place in the 17th century. When I heard about this case, I became pretty enthralled. Bailey Sarian is another content creator that you may have heard of. She has a YouTube channel and a podcast and is one of my favorite creators. So if you haven't already, definitely check her out. Anyways, a while back, she um, covered today's case on her YouTube channel, Murder, Mystery, and Makeup. Today, I'm going to be covering Julia Tafana, who would eventually confess to the murders of what she averaged were around 600 men between the years of 1633 and 1651 in Rome, but no one may have actually died at her hand. Since this case is so old, Unfortunately, there is not as much information regarding the players in this case. There are several different accounts of Julia's life with variations on when she was born, when her alleged crimes took place, whether she actually did commit her alleged crimes, and when she was eventually potentially hanged for her crimes. I'm going to try to provide the most commonly known accounts, but we'll throw in a few things here and there to add to the different variations that are out there. So why would I be enthralled with such an old story that may not even be true? Well, the most commonly discussed theory is that Julia became a professional poisoner who sold her poison to wives that were trapped in their abusive marriages with really no other way besides death. As many of you probably realize, the life of a woman in the 17th century was not all sunshine and rainbows. We did not have human rights and were seen as subservient beings placed on this earth to bear children and please the men. There was no birth control really at the time and women were forced to have as many children as their husbands wanted. There was also only midwives with little medical education or equipment and many women died during childbirth or after due to complications. Women were abused and forced into being possessions without any say to their own lives. And while being a widow was kind of a stain on your reputation, for some it was preferred to being in an abusive, loveless marriage. And divorce was not an option for a woman. She would have to ask the husband for permission, and due to their religious beliefs, it was very much not accepted and very uncommon for a divorce to be granted. Most of the women that sought the services of Julia's apothecary were not those of nobility or wealth, but rather from the lower class and sometimes destitute families. At this time, women were their father's property until they reached their teens, when these families would pretty much auction off their teen daughters to the highest bidder. 
Young women that did not come from wealth had very few options for their lives. They could get married. As I stated, essentially their father would present their child to the eligible men in the area, which they like to cutely call courting. The eligible bachelors, typically much older men than the teen girl, would then peacock themselves to the family and discuss why they should be chosen to marry her. Many of these arrangements ended with the women being physically and mentally abused regularly by their unfaithful husbands. The other option for a young woman not born of wealth was to stay single and refuse to marry, where she may be disowned from the family and be forced to sell herself to try to survive. Quickly, the woman learned that there was actually a third option. They could be a respected widow, who in many cases would also be pretty well off financially from inheriting their dearly departed husband's estate. Not that all marriages at this time were loveless and abusive, but unfortunately, due to the lack of worth that was placed on a woman, it was quite commonplace. It was said that Julia had a soft spot for these women that were stuck in this marriage with no way out, and she thought what she was doing was granting them an option to choose a better life for themselves, especially women that did not come from wealthy families. If a woman was from a wealthy family and was not sold off to a husband, she could inherit the family wealth and live her life with a bit more choice and ownership of her life. But if she came from a family in poverty and she did not get married off to the highest bidder, she would be destitute and forced to live on the streets and beg or sell herself for money to survive. Now I do not condone murder, and I do not believe that we have the right to take another's life, period. But honestly, in some of the situations that many of the women at this time would find themselves in, I get it. By giving them absolutely no autonomy of themselves and making them subhuman, were they really even given any choice? So, the women who knew what Julia was doing did not look at her like a monster who was murdering many people, but as their savior. She was their friend and helped them to inherit a little bit of money and rid themselves of their abuser, allowing them to raise their children they most likely had and live out their lives without having to be beaten and mistreated for little to no reason. And seriously, what wife deserves to be beaten, or what husband for that matter? Even if he or she cheats on you or is a pile of crap, you don't deserve to be physically hurt. But these women were not allowed to leave. They were not allowed to speak up for themselves. And it was normal for others to see bruises and think she must have done something wrong to be punished. So that's why I find this case interesting. And I hope you do too. So let me know what you think. But here is a little bit about the backstory. So who was Julia? Julia was born around the year 1620 to her parents, Francis and Thefania di Amato in Palermo, Sicily. Now, I apologize if I pronounce these names or these places wrong. I do not speak Italian, so I most likely am, so I apologize. <laughs> but Julia was described as being very beautiful and she enjoyed spending much of her time at the local apothecary, which was like the local doctor and pharmacy. They had different medicines and herbal remedies that they sold to the people of the town to cure different ailments. She learned how to make these different medicines and potions, and she started making her own. There is joint speculation that she either learned how to make these poisons during these times at the apothecary, 
Or there's also an idea that she may have learned how to make them from her mother, as she also made poison. Maybe, and this is pure speculation, but maybe she had the interest in the apothecary because of her mother, and maybe she went with her to the apothecary before her mother's eventual execution, and then continued to learn and hone her skills. No idea, just pure speculation on my part. See, her mother may have been the first to create Aquatafana, the poison that Julia would eventually sell in her own apothecary. The Fania, Julia's mother, used Aquatafana to poison Julia's father, Francis, and she was eventually imprisoned and executed in 1633 by way of public drawing and quartering. If you're unfamiliar what drawing and quartering is, please be advised, it's pretty awful. There are two types of execution practice in the past that this expression alludes to. One is where the victim was drawn by a horse to the gallows, then hanged, and then cut into four pieces and scattered. The other way, the victim was hanged, disemboweled while still alive, then beheaded and dismembered. Yikes. And as I said, this happened to Thefania in public, and it's wild to me that we did not stop public executions until 1936. Julia would marry shortly after her parents' death, and historians state that she would use Aquatafana on her own husband after the birth of her daughter, Girolama Spara, and after her husband's death, Julia and Girolama moved to Naples, then finally settled in Rome. In Rome, Julia started a cosmetology business and sold cosmetics to women. She was very well known and respected because not many women ran a business of their own at this time. She used her makeup store to also sell the poison, which was a very harmless looking liquid, but only a mere four to six drops were lethal. It was made of arsenic, lead, and belladonna, and she named this poison Aquatafana, and sold it in makeup bottles as a disguise. Miss Tafana had very easy access to these harmful materials because at the time, they were actually quite popularly used in everyday personal care products. Belladonna was popularly used by women at this time. They would use the juice from the berries and place a drop in their eyes. This would cause their pupils to dilate and provide a luminous effect. While reading an introduction to forensic plant science, and bear with me as I get a little sciency, the plant deadly nightshade with the scientific name Atropa belladonna, also known as Jimson weed, is a source of several hallucinogenic and potentially lethal tropane alkaloids. These are scopolamine, atropine, and hyocyanine. Scopolamine is currently used as an antidepressant and anti-nausea drug. Paradoxical overdose can produce depression, and it is a hallucinogenic, but the experience are generally extremely unpleasant. Atropine is also a parasympathetic agent, meaning it attacks the parasympathetic nervous system. Atropine causes pupil dilation, increased heart rate, and increased secretion of saliva. A fatal dose of atropine is greater than 10 milligrams, where scopolamine is toxic at 2 to 4 milligrams. 
The name Belladonna originates from Italy, where it was once used to dilate the eyes of women to make them more attractive to men. Bella in Italian means pretty. Lead and arsenic were also common ingredients in facial powders that were used at this time. From the 16th to 19th century, pale white alabaster skin was highly sought after because it meant that you were probably a higher class lady from high society. I guess higher class men as well because they also like to have powder white skin. And then it meant that you were not exposed to the elements. Many women would use white lead powders and makeup to make their skin appear lighter. From my reading about makeup at this time, apparently the white makeup was not as harsh as many mainstream movies and depictions portray the makeup to be, and more closely to that of the lightest skin tone. So it wasn't like paper white, but more of a pale skin tone. The lead makeup did provide the consumer with bright white face and clear tone, but as the lead builds up in your system, when you stop wearing the lead makeup, your skin will become um, more darker, freckled, uh, your pores will become enlarged, the elasticity in your skin will have relaxed, so you will have premature age. And while back in those times, this would create a vicious cycle. So the woman would reapply the makeup to cover the aging, while the makeup is actually creating the aging. Arsenic poisoning symptoms include immediate vomiting, abdominal pain and diarrhea, which will then be followed by numbness and tingling in the extremities and muscle cramps, and depending on the amount you're poisoned with will result in death. Eventually, Julia and her daughter, Girolama, began to sell this liquid to women who were looking for a solution to their desperate situations. Aqua Tafana was disguised in ornate makeup bottles so the purchaser could keep it in plain sight among their other makeup products without causing any suspicion. At first, the pair sold it as a powder, but the powder was harder for the women to mix into the food or drink than the liquid, so they started to sell Aqua Tofana as a liquid in small vials that looked like devotional oils that were also common to have at this time. She was known to decorate the makeup containers with St. Nicholas Abari, who was known as the protector of young girls who happened to be out on the streets and would pay for their dowries, which were fees the family of the women had to pay to get married. Dowries are still practiced in some parts of the world, which have resulted in some terrible crimes against humans, but that's for another story. The makeup containers were also decorated to look expensive. Mana of St. Nicholas Abari was another commonly used face cream at the time, so Julia used this to help hide Aqua Tafana in plain sight. Julia and her daughter didn't just start to sell this to anyone. They were sympathetic to the women that felt that they were trapped in these awful situations without any option other than to just be abused. So they began to sell it to women that they knew were in these situations. And then very quickly, word of mouth made Julia become known as a friend to the troubled wife. Aquatofana was, in their opinion, a quick, discreet solution to their problem. She did sell to a few men, but the majority of her customers were women. 
Aquatofana as a liquid was discreet due to it having no smell, no taste, and no color, so it's undetectable when ingested, and it was partially slow-acting, and the first few symptoms made it appear that the sufferer was coming down with a cold or flu, and it also made it appear that the person died of natural causes. It worked slow enough that most of the victims would have time to get their affairs in order to ensure that the wives, in most cases, were left with everything. Most people at this time were incredibly religious, which also caused most of the husbands to repent their sins so they could get into heaven. And this actually made it easier for some of the wives to continue poisoning them because they believed that they would be sending their husbands to heaven, which was better than earth anyways. <laughs> you know, it helps them justify it, I guess. As stated, it was slower acting. So it would slowly start to seem that the sufferer was coming down with a cold or flu, but each dose would cause worse symptoms. And by the third dose, they would be vomiting, dehydrated, have diarrhea, and a burning in their stomach, terrible abdominal and muscular cramps, and then by the fourth dose, the sufferer would die. Most women would add a few drops into the drink or meal that they prepared for their husband and dose them over a few days. But a few women would just dose them all at once, and then those husbands would experience all of those symptoms I mentioned above, but they would experience them rapidly or all at once before violently dying. Julia's apothecary did sell other makeup products, as I stated, and she was a quite respected businesswoman. Some women did seek her out for these cosmetics solely, but as word mouth spread, the demand for Aquatofana drove it to become her primary seller. Aquatofana was sold by word of mouth and discreetly, the woman truly valued Julia and her daughter's assistance, so a code was created to spread the word to women that were in these horrible situations and had really no other means to escape. They would not inform just anyone about the product because if authorities learned what they were doing and selling, not only would they be forced to stop, but Julia would be put to death for her crimes as well as all of her clients. So they kept it hush-hush and would make sure to only tell women that would also keep it under wraps and protect the secret, but were also in these desperate situations. She was also picky about who she would allow as a client and would make sure that whoever was referring her had been highly vetted themselves. Due to this discretion and vetting process, they were able to successfully sell Aquatofana for many years going undetected. The women would be given not only the poison at purchase, but they would be instructed on how to administer the poison and how to act when he started to show symptoms and then also how to act after the death. When the poison was first to be administered and the husband would seem to come down with a bad cold or flu, the doctor would come to the house and the doctor would give a medicine and then they would come back and their patient would actually be worse and then the doctor would try again to make things better and then they would come back again and the patient would be dead. So Julia told the women to make sure they were filled with anxiety and stress and were sad during these visits. 
Most of all, after their husband died, they should demand a post-mortem examination, which would result in nothing because the poison was undetectable at the time, and then the women were completely off the hook and were not under suspicion. Eventually, they started to put a label instructions on the different makeup bottles as well for the liquid poison to make it look even more misleading. The label would read something like, apply two to three drops to the face at night. This would allow the poison to continue to be placed in plain sight on the women's vanity. Then, if there was any question about the death and a search of the home was conducted, it would blend in with everything else. Eventually though, after many lives were taken, around the year 1650, a woman purchased Aquatafana. She was new to the group and was vetted by Julia. She took the poison home and added two drops to her husband's soup. He demanded a glass of wine, which she got for him, and then he took a sip of his soup before she starts to yell at him to stop eating and to put it down. She doesn't tell him why, but he of course tells her she needs to tell him what's in the soup, which he refused until he held her down and beat her and she confessed she poisoned it. He drags her down to the authorities in Rome and they torture her until she provides all of the details. Word quickly spreads that someone confessed and divulged everything and they tell Julia that she should pack and make a run for it. She goes to the church and asks for sanctuary until she could make her escape. Rumor begins to spread and exaggerate the circumstances even more until it is believed that she completely poisoned the water supply of all of Rome. So everyone is angry and wants her out. Word also got out that she was at the church. So the mob rushed into the church and threatened to burn it down if they didn't hand her over. She was surrendered to the authorities, where they tortured her until she confessed to everything. Julia confessed to the murders of what she averaged were around 600 men. It was believed the number was probably a lot higher. She was also forced to give up the names of many of her clients, but she was only able to provide some as she forgot many of them. Eventually, she was found guilty and was executed along with her daughter and three of their employees. Some believe that the number of victims was exaggerated by Julia do during the torture because it has been proven that when someone is being tortured, they will say whatever they think will make you stop torturing them, even if it isn't even close to the truth. And if torture was their main and primary way of trying to obtain information from her, she may have originally given them a much lower number, but they were not happy with that, so they continued to torture her until they were satisfied with the larger 600 number. It all could also be completely fabricated, as there was also no known verified records of any of this. It is alleged that Julia's body may have then been thrown over the wall of the church that offered her sanctuary as a way for them to stick it to the church for allowing her a safe place. Julia confessed to around 40 of her accomplices while under torture. Many of them played dumb and said that their purchase of Aquatafana was simply for cosmetic purchases and they were completely dumbfounded that you could actually murder someone with it. So it was kind of hard to determine who was a cosmetic client and who had purchased it just for murder. 
but many of them were executed by hanging, others were bricked into the dungeons of the palace of the Holy Office, where they would die from dehydration and starvation with no access to food or water, and others were considered lucky because they were just strangled in prison. The wealthier select few were actually able to get off without any punishment at all. Some people also believe that Julia was actually completely innocent and was just a successful businesswoman selling cosmetics at the time, which would have contained what we now know are poisons because they were common at the time. And at the time in Europe, there was a literal witch hunt sweeping through. So any woman doing anything outside being completely submissive could be executed. So many people believe she didn't do anything and was just murdered for being a woman. There was a theory that some of those involved with the creation and distribution who worked with Julia fled before being prosecuted and then continued to distribute Aquatafana on the underground market for many more years. So there is no way to know how many people actually were poisoned by it. It was commonly known throughout Europe and theorized that the poison was still being sold, making many people believe for many years to come that when they started to feel ill that maybe they were being poisoned. An interesting fact, which really has no basis on whether the story has any truth, but in 1791, Mozart fell ill before his eventual death and stated that he believed he had been poisoned and reports said that he thought he had been given aquatafana. It has been alleged that many more women purchased Aquatafana more as a symbol to embolden them that they had a choice without ever actually going through with using it. But then there were those that maybe did use it. So what do you think? Did Julia Tafana assist in the torturous deaths of hundreds of men in the 17th century? Or was she a successful and powerful type woman who subjected to being torn down by men who had a popular cosmetic line and maybe would talk to her clients about not allowing themselves to be abused, maybe offering them advice on ways to get out and word got around that she was outspoken and successful, so they took her out and created this narrative. I like to think that some of this is true. Usually stories don't just come out of nothing, so maybe she was helpful in assisting women that had been battered seek a bit of revenge while also giving themselves a bit of a leg up in the world. I can be a little petty at times, but I do think that there may have been some justification in the actions while also thinking that you don't have the right to take someone else's life, so it's tough. But. Please find me on social. I honestly am more active on my Facebook page and on Instagram. Both of them are under Christie's Chronicles. Let me know what you think of this story. Do you like the history element? As I've teased on my social media accounts, Chris and I are also working on a sub-series for this podcast um, to go into a deep dive into the paranormal. I'll be releasing those episodes soon and will be released more of a midweek episode. So please stay tuned and make sure you have your notifications on so that you are notified when a new episode is released. I hope after the holidays to have more of a regular release schedule. So please let me know if you have any case ideas that you're interested in covering. I believe that my next true crime related episode will probably be regarding cults, 
possibly talking about the twin flame situation that everyone seems to be talking about recently. So um, yeah, let me know if you're interested in that. Please, you know, give my um, content a like or share. Um, leave it a rating if you can. I'm trying to get about a thousand listens a month. So if you do find this interesting, please share it out there. I'd love to uh, get a little bit more of a following if you think it's good and worth sharing. So I just appreciate any support you can provide. It means so much to me. So thank you so much for listening. Please be safe out there. Stay true to yourself and spread kindness far and wide. Peace.